Welcome to Changing Academic Life. I'm Geraldine Fitzpatrick, and this is a podcast series where academics and others share their stories, provide ideas, and provoke discussions about what we can do individually and collectively to change academic life for the better. And today I'm speaking with Professor Carl Goodwin. He's in the Department of Computer Science at University of Saskatchewan and Director of the Human Computer Interaction Lab there. Among other things, he talks about his early career experiences, making choices, dealing with rejection and keeping things in perspective. I hope you enjoy it. So I'm very happy to introduce Carl Goodwin, a good friend of mine from way back in the 90s, Carl, isn't it? Um, Carl's at University of Saskatchewan. Nicely done. <laughs> it's such a long name, isn't it? And in Saskatoon? Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. Yeah, yeah it's a mouthful. Yeah, it's a mouthful. And have been there now for almost 20 years, if you can believe it. I can't. Yeah. That's, that is unbelievable. Yeah. It says we're getting older. Yeah. And so, yeah. Um, and Carl's been one of the sort of really key people in the, in the CSCW and CHI community over the years. Um, and that's been recognised by a CHI Academy member award. Which was, uh, was very that in kind. 2011? No, 11 no, or 12, it? I think. 12. Um, and if you just look at Google Scholar, I just looked at this morning, 13,926 citations. Thank you very much. That's so, wonderful. I mean, that's an incredible influence to have had. I wonder how many of those are my own citations. <laughs> my own Some outside as well. Yeah. That's good. So do you just want to just give a bit of a background about sure. where you've come from? And sure. So I am uh, from Saskatoon. So because we're going to talk a little bit about life-work balance, I'll say that I'm a, I'm a gentleman farmer in Saskatoon, and I happen to be a university professor as well. I have uh, a family, I have a wife and two kids, two boys who are now in, the oldest one is in university now, and the youngest one is in high school. And um, we just got a beehive in our backyard. Oh, so cool. You want to talk about things that keep you grounded yeah. and uh, hurting. Uh, but I started, I did my undergraduate degree in English Lit and Computer Science at the University of Saskatchewan back in the, I started in 1983, which really seems like a long time ago now. And um, then I did my master's at the U of S as well, and then worked for a while in Calgary, and then met Saul Greenberg, who became my PhD so did supervisor. You, did you work with Saul? When you said you worked in Calgary, did you work with Saul then, or was it with someone no, else, it was and a, that's when you met it Saul? it was a government research lab called the Alberta oh, Research okay. Council. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, Saul had actually worked there, and so they knew yeah. who he was and yeah. uh, made that connection. And I actually had wanted to, to go and do a master's degree in English and uh, had even been accepted, but... Uh, there were, for whatever reason, I can't even remember now because it was back in 1994, mm. uh, we decided to stay in Calgary and so mm. I was looking around for mm. what could I do in Calgary and yeah. Saul was the obvious choice to do a PhD with. And, so. and of course it's obvious to do a PhD with a lit degree you know, in a computer science department. Yeah, well, as it, there course. was a lot more money for students if you were doing computer science than there was if yeah. you were doing English lit. So that kind of, I always thought that I would do the PhD in, in computer science first and then go back and do an MA in English, but obviously that never happened because no. the train left the station yeah, and has yeah. kept going ever since. 
But how, how did you find that transition? Because they're just feels sort of at some opposite end of, you know, extreme. But I think everybody has multiple interests. And, yeah. and you know, I was lucky enough to be able to, to do both of them at university. Mm. So you had done some programming. Yeah, yeah, I'd been programming. I was just talking to Andy Coburn about this last night. We were talking about when we, when we started coding. Yeah. And, yeah, you know, it was on a teletype that was put into our school in about grade six in like yeah. 1975. And then, then the Apple II popped up in 78, I think, and my elementary school had yeah. one. And, you know, they had BASIC on them. And, and for whatever reason, some of the nerdier kids got interested in that. And so we were really, we were doing stuff with that all along. Um, okay, so it wasn't such a, it wasn't such a big, yeah, Change. I always, yeah. I, well, I actually, of course, I wanted to be a marine biologist when I went to university. I'd watched mm-hmm. a lot of Jacques Cousteau mm-hmm. specials when I yep. was a kid, right? So yep. I was going to be a, a marine biologist, not knowing. You know, I grew up 3,000 kilometers from any ocean, right? I'm just thinking ocean, of living in, right? in Saskatoon. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, then found out that I'm, I'm drastically seasick, even you know, <laughs> when I look at the water. So that was not going to happen. And, of course, I hated first-year biology, so I had to find something else to do. And... But I really liked both my first-year computer science class mm. and my first-year English class. So right. when you're young and really don't plan things, yeah. you just keep taking the classes yeah. that you like to take. And yeah. then three years along, somebody says, you know, you're pretty close to you know, doing this degree and doing that degree. Yeah. And I like that you just went with the flow and, more yeah. importantly, went with your passions and interests. Yeah, it sounds like that now, but I don't know if that was the case at the yeah. time. I think it was you know, maybe more lack of direction. Anyway, so back to, this, to the, the timeline. So then I started my PhD in 1994 uh, with Saul. And, and again, you know, thought that I was going to do intelligent tutoring systems mm-hmm. or, or collaborative learning or something, because that's what I'd done in my master's with Gord McCalla at Saskatchewan. And, and then quickly learned that it's really hard to show that people have learned anything and uh, was faced, I guess, right away with the methodological dilemma about Mm. um, how are you going to show that what you've done actually has any value. Because Saul was good about about, uh, forcing you to think about evaluation. And so then I I switched. He had this idea that that awareness would be an interesting topic to look at in, in groupware. He'd done lots of that early work and built some of those early systems, and he'd done telepointers and, and you know, all of those kinds of early awareness mm. uh, devices. So I got interested in that, and yeah. then four years later, you know, out you pop with a, with a PhD. And I remember um, CCW 96, I think it was, mm-hmm. there was a whole session devoted to you guys and yeah. your awareness work. There were, there was, I think there was a long paper, wasn't there, and three or four short papers. It was you and Mark Roseman. And I think we gamed the system because they allowed you to send in suites of short yep. papers. Yep. And so we, we got six of them in, yeah. and we took over the whole, the whole session. So. But that was really influential at the time. Yeah, I know. I mean, those, and it still is. Those two-page papers have, have yeah. lots and lots of citations. Yeah. For everyone out there who's still citing them, there are are longer, better papers that you should cite. I just read um, Tom Gross's review of awareness that was for the CSCW journal, and you guys, your work especially figures prominently. Well, and of course, a lot of people have worked on awareness, and it's it's a very broad topic, and it's a big house for lots of people to work on. And it was fun taking a 
more of a technological perspective, you know, and what can we build to support yeah. these things. I think that lots of people have done extraordinary work looking at the, the you know, the social side of awareness and yeah. what it means to be yeah. aware of other people in groups. Yeah. Um, so anything that we've managed to do on the technical side really builds on all that stuff that's yeah. gone before. Key work. So you finished your PhD. Yeah, so uh, I thought we, we had been um, going a little bit to New Zealand because my grand supervisor, so Saul's supervisor, was at the University of Waikato, Ian Witten, and, and so we'd had the chance to visit there, kind of tagging along with one of Saul's sabbaticals. And I loved New Zealand, and I thought that you know, that's where we should go and where I should get a job. And um, This was in the mid-'90s, I guess. There were still a few jobs available. Mm-hmm. The, the tech boom was still happening, and the first tech crunch hadn't happened yet. So um, I had all this great idea that we were going to go and become Kiwis and move to New Zealand. Kiwi farmers instead of yeah, Saskatoon right. farmers. Yep. But... Uh, my wife had different ideas. Gwen wanted to move to back to home, and we were just about to have our first kid. And and sort of she she kind of said, "Look, there's a job ad from the University of Saskatchewan. You're going to apply to that." And then uh, when the, we went through the interview and they made me an offer, she said, "Look, there's an offer. You're going <laughs> to accept that offer." So it was the only place that I applied to. Wow! And so you know when my students say give me some advice on the hiring process yeah. and all of that. I really have not uh, yeah. much to say to them. Yeah. Pick the place that you want to go and get that job and then stop. That's really all that I have. But it turned out, of course, to be you know, a fantastic decision. It, Saskatoon's a great place to bring up your kids. It's mm. really valuable mm. to be close to family yeah. in yeah. those cases. Yeah. And uh, on the whole, it was, it was absolutely the right decision. But how did you go there, setting up a new lab? Because oh, yeah. was, was there any HCI expertise there? there? Sounds there were, like you were pretty on your own in the beginning. There were some people doing it, but I, I really did kind of launch out onto my own. Mm. And so, oh man, starting a lab, learning how to teach. I'd never taught before. You know, I didn't have the experience of doing that as a PhD student. Applying for grants, serving on committees. There was also no teaching relief for new profs at that time. So... My first year, three classes, and uh, off you go. Lots of marking. So when you look back now, what did you do that worked well, and what would you do differently? Well, my first department head had a funny joke where he, when I started, he said, the best part about this job is the flexibility. You can work any 80 hours of the week that you want. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, too slog. true. And, of course, I don't know if we've ever discussed this, but the the tech boom was really happening just after I started in 98. And so after, you know, a year and a half or two years of this, all of us in academia were thinking, what are we doing? All of our friends are out, and they're millionaires, and, you know, presumably not even working that hard. And people that I'd gone to to graduate school in Calgary with were were millionaires, at least in stock terms. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so we were all very dim on the prospect of staying in academia with our mm. pathetic salaries because yep. they were truly okay. pathetic. 80 hour weeks. Did you actually work 80 hour weeks in the beginning? I mean, were they long? Oh, oh yeah. Like they, you know, I'd, I never dared to add it all up because it would have been too yeah. depressing. But, yeah. you know, sort of every night and every day on the weekend and yeah. all that kind of thing. And how long did that go on for? Like, is there, do you think there was some time when... Absolutely, you, yeah. Like three, years. three years. Three years. Three mm-hmm. years. And... 
I've talked to other people who have yeah. said a similar thing, yeah. that after three years, you get a little bit better at the things that are difficult, like teaching or marking, mm -hmm. or you figure out ways to do a little bit less on those sides. Yeah. You have a few successes on the, on the academic side. Mm -hmm. you, know, you have a few papers in, mm -hmm. or you, you know, when you branch out and do a couple of new topics that weren't in your PhD, mm -hmm. usually those are a little rocky at the beginning because you don't mm -hmm. know the, the background and so forth. But then after three years, you kind of have a little bit more of that under your belt and, and you feel a bit more confident there. And then all of a sudden, it, it doesn't seem quite so dark mm. trying to go through mm -hmm. this. Um, it, it also helped that the tech crash happened and that all of my millionaire friends were now no longer millionaires. And where I was, had been saying, you know, I have to work for 32 more years, I was now saying, hooray, I have a job have for a 32 job, yeah. more years. So that's an interesting matter of perspective. Because yeah, I was going to ask you how you resolved for yourself that thing about, you know, they're out with being millionaires and you're... Well, I had actually, I'd actually even talked to, at one point, talked to a company, a startup in town, and uh, the guy that I knew there had said... Yeah, you could come and work mm. for us. But, of course, if I had gone there, mm. I would have been out of a job within, you know, nine months. Yeah. And then with a PhD in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, you're going to have to leave in order to get a job. Cause I probably well, you really are going to be a gentleman farmer. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah. So it, everything turned out well, for the, the best. The yeah, yeah. Oh, you know, just a plain old farmer. Yeah. But the thing that, you know, the, the reason why I didn't go to, to work on a startup is that it, you know, these discussions never really got anywhere because I felt, I guess, loyalty or obligation mm -hmm. to the, you know, to the institution that I'd made a commitment to. Mm -hmm. And I think that you know, that was worthwhile in the long run in that it, uh, if you stick with things that you decide you're going to do, there must have been a reason why you decided yeah. to do those in the yeah. first place. And it, it ended up being the right decision. So when you talk about there must have been a reason, are you talking about in sort of in the grander scheme of things or a more pragmatic reason? You know, I think in grander sense. scheme, right? I've always wanted to be a scientist, yep. you know, marine yep. biologist when I was a kid. Yeah. But the idea of discovering new things and, you know, inventing stuff, yeah. playing around with cool yeah. ideas, I think was always the thing that I wanted to do. Yeah. And I know that people can do that in companies as yeah. well, but it's, yeah. it, there's, it really is true that the best part about the job is the freedom and, uh, and the flexibility, because yeah. now that I'm past maybe 80-hour weeks or the worry yeah. about, you know, am I going to make tenure yeah. or pr promotion, you really get to do whatever you want. And, yeah. and it is absolutely the best job in the world. Academia lets you fool around with things that you'd probably be fooling around with even yeah. if they weren't paying you. Yes. And, uh, and that's very cool. Yeah. And any parts of the job that we don't like are under our control, so there's really nobody to are blame but ourselves. Are they all under our control, though? Well, you know, yes, you have to serve on you know this many committees per yeah. year, and you have to do yeah. your teaching and so forth. But yeah. I don't think that's the reason why most people, at least at kind of at my phase of the job, are overworked. It's because mm. we say yes to everything, and we're very mm. bad at saying no. Mm. And um, here I am doing an interview with you instead of <laughs> sleeping in this morning. Um, but, but I'm so glad you said that's yes. Good, that's good. Um, so many things I want to pick up on there. I want to pick up on the sort of saying yes, no, and a tick. But, sure. Um, in, I'm just interested in that early phase because we just did a, a right. career development workshop and I, you know, lots of people in early phases of their careers dealing with the sort of stresses that you, know, you were talking about in those early times. Right. What were some of the more practical things that you did that you think really worked? That's a good question. It, 
it helps. The, the primary thing is to have a supportive family, mm-hmm. and so I had you know one and then two little kids, and um, my wife was at home at that time looking after the kids. So mm-hmm. it it was just an enormous support to have them be willing to you know let me put in those long hours, or yeah. there was somebody to you know to be at home when you know when I was off at a conference, and yeah. I think that lots of Two academic families have, you know, worlds apart of, of, of what I went through. So, it's it's difficult for me to imagine, you know, how mm. difficult it could have been. Mm. I think that one of the the things that I did, though, that that helped in some some respect was I I chose to go to the University of Saskatchewan, not to, you know, I didn't try to you know, put as many applications out there as I could and go to the the top institution mm-hmm. that I could possibly yeah. get into. Yeah. And I think that that there's advantage in being a medium large fish in a medium mm-hmm. small pond mm-hmm. um, for lots of reasons, and one of those is that uh, expectations might be a little bit lower yeah. is that if you you know only publish n papers a year instead of two n papers a year, mm-hmm. that maybe that's okay for for the faculty that you're in so I don't know what it would be like to to be at you know, at, at a bigger institution, mm. but I'm very happy that that I fetched up at the one that I, yeah. I'm at. And it just, I think that any success that I've had shows that it doesn't really matter anymore where you're at. You can get good students yeah. at lots of different places, yeah. and you can do good work. Um, How far in were you before you got your first bunch of students or employees think, or research people? I think I had a couple right away at the beginning, mm. and... Um, but the first group that I had that kind of went all the way through and, and worked on the things that I was interested in mm. was a couple of years in. And, um, and, and grad students make everything different, of course, and make everything better. Lots of the, of the academics kind of one generation ahead of me, like Ian Witten. I, yeah. I've often asked people like him, what, what is it that, that keeps you going all the way through to, into a full career? And Almost uniformly, they say it's the relationships with other people, and yeah. primarily with your students, yeah. that you get to have these intellectual relationships with, with smart people who go off and do interesting things, and, mm. and I guess then you have someone to visit you know, wherever you go in the world. Indeed. You've yeah. got your grand soups. And, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, so was it, it how did you find being a supervisor instead uh, of being a supervisee? It, being a supervisor was another, yeah, a gigantic adjustment. Mm. Right? Moving to the other side of the desk. Mm. Oh, man, that is mm. so hard. And I don't know of anybody who really gives you that, you know, gives you advice about yeah. all of those things. We're not trained in management. We're not trained in many things that you end up doing. Yeah. Well, yeah, Even sort of managing accounting. budgets for you. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> to figure out, you yeah. know, am I going to have enough money left for the yeah. rest of the year to pay my students? Yeah. And... And my university did, you know, whatever the backwards kind of accounting is. And yeah. so I'm looking at all these numbers and I have no idea what they even mean. And yeah. trying to figure yeah, out... I'm, you know. I'm with you on that. I don't know. Yeah. So, you know, nobody tells you that. And nobody tells you how to select graduate mm. students. Mm. Other than they say, mm. you know, select good ones. Mm. And you think, oh, okay. Well, one of the questions that was asked the other day was, how do you tell a good student? Yeah, yeah. I, I still don't... 
you know, I still don't have any kind of magic formula yeah. for that, and I think yeah. I still take on students that surprise me yeah. in, you know, either upwards or downwards in yeah. terms of what they end up doing. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think that everybody's different and everybody has different management styles. Yeah. Some, some work really well in some contexts, and the only thing that's worked for me is that I have to kind of change my management style based on the student. And right. some students yep. seem to respond better yep. if you, you know, if you do it this way, and, and other students, yeah. you know. So, do you have an explicit discussion with them at the beginning to negotiate that, or do you just sort of play it by ear, you know, work it out as you go along I, to see what works and doesn't? I think that the more you can that you can put out on the table in terms yeah. of expectations up front, the yeah. better off you'll be yeah. as a as a supervisor, yeah. as a manager. Yeah. I know that this is this is probably in some you know introduction to management book, which I should probably have read but twenty again, years ago. Not trained in it. That's right. And when did I have time yeah. to read that? But yeah. um, the, it really does help to say, for example, you know, these are the hours of work. You, know, you should actually have some hours of work, and you should plan to be at the lab every day rather than disappear for six months and yeah. things like that. Yeah. And uh, telling them that they actually have to finish their degree instead of going to industry halfway through, um, that's an expectation that I now always put out on the table. It doesn't always happen, but at least maybe they feel guilty mm. when they leave the lab and, and all that thing. So. Yeah. So um, one of the things that's really impressed me about you over the years is you, know, you have this amazing sort of awe of calmness and just sort of in control. And you also seem to be really, really good at prioritising work and life. I mean, it sounds like those first three years were sort of a bit hairy. Yes. Would you... Is that a fair assessment? What would you say to that? I don't know. Um, I think that it's a continual struggle. Yeah. Balance is tough yeah. for everybody. And I'm glad that at least there's that veneer of calmness. That's a good thing. <laughs> so it's sort of like, the, what is it, the duck with the... Yeah, that's right, paddling yeah. madly underneath. Yeah. Maybe it's a sort of a, a fake it till you make mm. it sort of, mm. sort of thing. And again, it's, I have constant reminders from my kids and my yeah. wife that yeah. um, you should be doing this instead of that. And, and you know, this being something with yeah, them yeah, rather than come on outside and thing. play catch, yeah. or we're going camping and yeah. you have to come along, and yeah. you're not taking the laptop with yeah. you. Yeah, so because I remember you talking about just taking the boys off, you know, in a tent in the woods. Yep, with off you go, nothing. and yeah. and those things are really good, even yeah. though you might yeah. miss a deadline or two. And it, it, it's very good to get the perspective of even when you're a young academic and you think that the world will end if you don't get your CSCW paper in or four of them in or whatever your goal is that you've set. Yeah. It, and this may be cheap. You know, looking back is always different than looking forward yeah. when you're past tenure and all that kind of thing. But it really doesn't matter. And it really uh, is immaterial whether you get that paper mm. submitted because, mm. believe it or not, there's always another deadline yep. that comes later. And every paper will find a home and yeah. every idea will find a place to go. So I always remember you... Because we, we did this uh, Kai Papers Chair. Right. When was that? Was that 10 or 11? I, I think time blurs. Something like time blurs. But I, I remember sort of having a discussion with you at some point around that. And you were talking about a 
paper dealing with rejection and that you had a paper that got rejected and you felt really bad about it, but you you worked on it according to the reviewers' feedback and it won a Best Paper Award the next year. And you you would much rather have a paper that just made it in that was so-so and you'd much rather have a Best Paper Award than a paper that just made it in. I tell my students that story often. I say, Carl Goodwin's... (laughs) But I think it's true. If we're in this game to think about cool things mm. and to have interesting ideas mm. and to talk to other people about interesting ideas, mm. then there, there's less value in having a half-baked idea. Yeah. You know, maybe there, sometimes there is. Sometimes yeah. it's great to get an idea out there and then everybody can tell you why it's half-baked yeah. and it makes yeah. a great discussion. But I think that, that really knowing kind of what goes on when you try out a certain technique or a new invention, mm. it's, it's really good to know a little bit more about that. Mm. And so lots of people will, you know, I don't think this is not new advice that waiting until a research idea is ready to go forward is, is a great idea. And I don't always do that, but when I get the first version of it rejected, mm. at least that's the fallback is that I can say, okay, well, it'll be better next time. And yep. Yeah. You know, I still do publish things yeah. often maybe too early, but then the reviewers yeah. tell me that it's too early. Do you deal with rejection differently now? I mean, do you, or do, oh, were you always able to deal with rejection no, in a way no, that no. said, you know, it'll get better next time? No, no. Uh, no. When you're a young academic you, and you, you're looking at a very small pub count for the last year or two years... Well, and Only 20 papers or something. No, no well, well when I started it... And remember, you know, when in the 90s, you didn't have a a gigantic publication count Mm. when you came Mm. out of your PhD. Mm. And I thought, oh, I'll try these new, try some of these new areas, and some of them didn't pan out very Mm. well. So, yeah, in those first three years, part of it really was looking at the actual totals Mm. and trying to get them up to a Mm. non-embarrassing number when you go up for your first promotion. And so when, when rejections would happen... It would be, you know, sleepless nights and what am I going to do and all this kind of thing. And And back then, CSCW was only every two years, so it wasn't like you could, you know, immediately trot it out to the next next version of the conference. But it gets easier, of course, and it's because you're not so worried about tenure and promotion and you just have more of those rejection Mm. experiences to lean on. Is that, oh yeah, another one of those. Good old reviewer number two. And, and, and you do start to realize that, well, we'll just we'll revise this and yeah. put it in. And it's that perspective thing again. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And it, it's one paper starts to blur into all of the other ones when you yeah. have enough of them. Yeah. And if that sounds like bragging, I apologize. But it, it, definitely, it definitely seems like it's one mm-hmm. out of many things mm-hmm. that you're doing rather than you know, the only thing mm-hmm. that's going to get you forward. Yeah. But I think it would be very difficult still as a, as a junior prof yeah. trying to you know, get those yeah. things out that you know are going to be recognized as accomplishments when you try to go through the At the same time as you're learning how to teach and yeah. learning how to do all these other and things. And looking after your little kids yeah. or moving to a new city or trying yeah. to make friends or trying yeah. to have a life. Yeah, mm. it's tough. And I think some systems around the world are, are much more grueling than others. Mm. The Canadian system isn't terrible for that. So tenure, for example, wasn't uh, the gigantic bar that it is in, in American universities. Yeah. And again, it depends a little bit on what institution you choose yeah. to go to, I guess. Yeah. I've heard lots of stories about 
colleagues who just sleep in their office because yeah. they, why go home? I'm here at 11.30 and yeah. I have to be back at 7, so, you know. So, what would you be working now then? Clearly not the 80 that you did in the oh, uh, I think it's pretty reasonable. I have on occasion, you know, used a time tracker mm. to, yeah. to kind of figure out yeah. what goes on and it's very bursty, of course. Mm. So you mm. know, the lead up to Kai would yeah. be probably very different than, you know, than mm. I don't and know what during March. semester teaching. And, and yeah. yeah, teaching yeah. is a big deal too. But I, I would venture a guess that it's more of a regular work week than yeah. it, you know, than it used to be. Yeah. But I don't know. And you do? Um, are you still doing crazy things like? Cycling is at 22 miles in the snow in minus 20 degrees. I haven't driven my car to work since 1999, I think, so all winter long. But it's great. We have a a wonderful uh, path system that goes down the river in Saskatoon, so I don't mind riding in the wintertime. I just don't ride on the roads where cars can run over me. And uh, it's great. My son rides with me now sometimes because he's coming to university, and and uh, he's he rides all winter now yeah. as well. I only have a short cycle to and from work, but I just I love the way it clears. You know, the, the wind just goes through your head. Yep, you're forced to think about other mm. things. Yeah. and yeah, you come to work mm. kind of feeling a little mm. bit different. It it would be very hard if I had a busy commute. Mm. You know, so it would yeah. sort of add to the yeah. stress of the work day. But that also means you're building in exercise in a very natural way. Right. Like in, in talking right. about sort of doing things that look after yourself, you know, beyond just sort of being all about work. Yeah, I, and I don't know whether that's uh, something that you explicitly choose to do or that you just sort of have mm. always done, mm. but that's definitely a big part of it. It gets mm. you out of thinking mm. about the, mm. the, the job and... If you're chasing a soccer ball around or if you're yeah. you know, riding your bike, yeah. you have to do something else. Yeah. And that's, I think it's really good. Yeah. So um, I'm just looking at the time and it's probably, I'd love to keep talking. And maybe at some point we'll come back and do some more sort of focused topics Great. at some point um, to explore. Because one of the things that we were going to discuss, uh, that we were discussing as we were walking in was, uh, you know, you talked about the number of publications you had when you mm-hmm. finished, and you know, we were saying how people now seem to need or are expected to have so many more to be competitive, and yeah. wondering whether that's uh, something that's much more of a global phenomenon. What we can do about it? It's a yeah, that's a really interesting topic, and you know we probably don't have time yeah. to go into that. But we can just put it out there just to yeah. It's an interesting thing, and mm. and I don't know you know what's going to happen over the next mm. ten years, but it really changes the way in which we. You know, how do we do our own PhD students a good service yeah. to prepare them yeah. for this? Yeah. And you know, and is that don't come into a PhD? Is that the best yeah. advice that we yeah. can give them if there aren't any jobs at the other end? Anyways? If there aren't any jobs, and if they're expected to totally kill themselves to yeah. get the sort of maybe yeah. some, mm, yeah. So I don't know what yeah. the answer to that is. I don't either. I don't either. But um, any final thoughts or reflections on? Well, with Life, all the, the bumps, even with all the bumps, it's the best job in the world. It's being yeah. an academic is is clearly fantastic. Excellent. And uh, I'm glad I didn't become a marine biologist. Could <laughs> be. It sounds like you just couldn't have become a marine yeah. biologist. <laughs> I've got true. a vision of you hanging off the side of the boat. Exactly. Yeah. But I get to you know talk to interesting mm. people and 
um, you know, do interesting things. Mm -hmm. So even with all of the difficult things, it you know make it through those first three years, mm -hmm. and, and I think that everything gets better after that. I do think that we, we could make institutional changes that would yeah. help, and, yeah. and I think it's really good that you're looking at those things from a mm -hmm. big a big perspective, but it's a great um, it's a great occupation to work on, yeah. right? And we have the chance to to change the way it works, yeah. and so it's good that you're starting to do yeah. that. And I think you've talked about some of the ways that you've made choices for your own life that reflect right. possible changes. Yeah, mm. yeah. I think everybody's different, but yeah. if if you really want a work-life balance you mm -hmm. can have it because nobody else is going to tell you nobody else is going to do it for yeah. you you just have to decide what you want and then go and do it yeah. sounds easy doesn't yeah. it yeah it does sound easy but it also points to the really key thing in it which is us yes exactly and us making yeah. choices yeah mm. well carl thank you so much for your time you're more than welcome great talking to you a fun time yeah